Uh, when I was a kid, I remember it being a big treat, at least to my parents, that we go to Cracker Barrel when we were on vacation. Uh, I don't even know for New Englanders how many of you are aware of the existence of Cracker Barrel or what it is. I know we have a few up and around. Cracker Barrel is this lovely restaurant that does lots of southern comfort food, and it also has a big store in it, uh, an old country market. And there's candy, and there's toys, and there's just all kinds of fun stuff. And when I was a kid, where I grew up, we had zero Cracker Barrels, and so part of the fun of a road trip was that you would get to go to Cracker Barrel. And at Cracker Barrel, they had the food. There was always a fireplace and a checkers board. And we always wanted to play checkers, but someone else was always there. And so we sat there and waited impatiently for them to finish with the checkerboard. Um, there was always all the stuff to look at. It was a good pit stop on a road trip because you know it felt comfortable and there was good food. And you could even do a little shopping, stretch your legs. It was, it was you know just something we were used to. And we were particularly used to it because every Cracker Barrel in the world effectively looks the same. The vast majority of them, you walk in, you're immediately in the store, the bathrooms are right behind you, or right in front of you, and then to the left is the seating. And the seating has two halves of the dining room that's got a dividing wall in the middle, and then the fireplace is right where the dividing wall is, and the kitchen's on the back left-hand side of the restaurant. If you have been to a Cracker Barrel immediately, right now you're going, yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. Uh, I once got myself into trouble because all Cracker Barrels look the same. We were done with a road trip, uh, part of a road trip. We stopped to eat. And of course, when you're on a long road trip and you stop, the first thing you have to do is go to the bathroom. And I went into Cracker Barrel. looked like every other Cracker Barrel in the world. And the men's room is always on the left. And the women's room is always on the right in a Cracker Barrel. And so I ran in, came to that left door, swung it open, and there were women in that room. Some architect thought they'd get fancy and flip the men's and women's room. I've been in 55 Cracker Barrels in my life. Never was the men's room on the right. But some reason on this one, it was. And it sounds silly, but we've all maybe had that experience, whether it's Cracker Barrel, McDonald's, whatever, of going into a restaurant somewhere else in the country, and it looks exactly like the restaurant back home. Because they, you know, these big corporations, these franchises make one blueprint and then they build them all over the country. Because the thought is, if the McDonald's is good enough for Minneapolis, it's good enough for San Antonio, right? It doesn't matter where it is, it all looks the same. And this is something that we experienced a lot in the 20th century, this idea that one size fits all, mass production. You, uh, we see it sometimes in homes, one of the things we love about the west side, or the west end of Providence where we live, is that there's these different houses, right? There's all of these Victorian beautiful homes. There's homes that always look different. You walk down, there's different colors. There's different windows. I mean, just everything is different because it was uniquely built by a different person. And so there's character to it. You go other places in the country and they have 500 homes that all look exactly the same because they've cookie cut them. They are part of a 20th century efficiency model where we're going to make everything so it looks the same. We see it with franchise restaurants. People wanted to be able to go anywhere in the country and eat the same boring hamburger that they get anywhere else. Um, even clothes are this way. I was thinking about this recently. Uh, we frequently see kids come into church and they're wearing the same clothes that our kids have but that's because we all shop at Target together or Gymboree or whatever. We just mass produce the clothes. 200 years ago, people had gone, you guys all wear the same thing? You go to the same place? Nobody made that for you? 
Uh, we had the same furniture, the same, you know, TVs. Like, we just mass produce everything. And sometimes in the church, we do this a little bit too. There's a church that's been really successful, gotten really big. And so we decide, well, you know what we'll do is we'll just reproduce that church somewhere else. So the fact that that's a church of 5,000 people in Southern California, we go, oh, well, we could do that in Providence. It would be no different whatsoever, right? Because people aren't different in Providence. And so for much of the 20th century, Christians were very guilty of trying to build the exact same church all over the place. And then we're shocked and amazed when people in a place like Rhode Island are a little different than they are in California or Alabama or Alaska. And what's been cool is over the last 10 or 20 years, we've seen a shift back to trying to not mass produce things, to make things for a specific purpose. So now there's the pushback. People don't want Starbucks as much. They want a local coffee shop with local coffee roasters that where the money goes back into their community and the feel and vibe of the room is the feel of what their neighborhood feels like. Uh, what's really exciting about this from a church perspective is it encourages us to co-create with God. That when it comes to building a church, it's not just, well, this is what everybody else has always done. We'll just set up exactly what was there before. We don't have to do the cracker barrel of churches. That every community has to think very carefully. The way we put it sometimes in theological circles is think like a missionary. Think like a person who is sharing the gospel across a cultural divide so that the church looks appropriate to where you are. If you go to church today in the Philippines or in Nigeria or in Spain or in the United States, they'll look different because people are different. And churches, if they're going to be effective in connecting with people, have to be appropriate to the culture that they're in. And so we have this process where we say, well, what, what's God desire for the church and what are some of the themes of the Bible and what's going on in our community? And how do we craft and create a particular church culture that speaks in a strong and powerful way? Now, this isn't to say that there aren't basics that are important. Okay, obviously we want, uh, if you're going to, in my opinion, if you're going to go to church, you need to be somewhere that values Jesus, values Scripture, teaches the, the truth of the resurrection, all of those kinds of things. But the reality is you, there's a lot of churches that do that. Almost every single one of you, I, I can't think of any exceptions, drove past a church that also teaches the basic core things that we teach in order to get here today. But you came here today instead of somewhere else. We're very thankful for that, by the way. That's great. Uh, and the question is, well, what makes us different then? Why, how did we, what are we building that feels different? What are our peculiarities here that make this community meaningful to us? And so that's a big, long intro for this series we're doing called The Heart of the Feast. We have four core values that undergird everything that we do here as a community. And for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about those and what they look like and why they do them and how they encourage us to not just be Christians, not just follow Jesus, but to go about it in a certain way that speaks to people in our community in a special way. And the reality of this is this may mean that this is a bad church for some people who live near us. There may be some people whose interests are not going to align with who we are, and they're going to go, you guys aren't the right fit, and that's okay. The desire here is to be authentically what God has called us to be so that other people who don't fit in other places will fit in here. So we're going to talk about those, um, 
those core values. And we're going to do that by going to a story in Acts chapter 14, verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. Uh, he was, <laughs> yeah, sorry. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called up, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not let himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Our first value today is the value of dialogue, uh, the value of having conversations with people. This story is, uh, is interesting to me. We tend to talk about a different one in Athens that I'll talk about in a minute. We talk about the way Paul dealt with people in different places. But this story gets overlooked. This story, uh, Paul is going about the, the known world, going to places where people had never heard about Jesus before and sharing with them for the first time who Jesus was. And so he comes to uh, this area, the Lycus River Valley, Lystra and Derby are these towns. And these places are the sticks of the ancient world, okay? In our, uh, in our parlance, this is where you hear the banjo music, right, as you come into town. These folks are kind of living out in the woods. They're living off the land. They're not particularly um, educated people. They wouldn't have been involved in school systems. They are just kind of mountain men and women living out in the hinterlands far from cities and society. And Paul strolls into town to tell them about Jesus. And it's a really peculiar story. If you know Paul's pattern in the book of Acts, you know that this story is going down differently. Uh, typically what Paul does is Paul walks into a community and he finds the synagogue and he goes on Saturday to synagogue services and he pulls open the scroll and he reads from the Hebrew Bible and he says this passage tells us about Jesus. And he starts to explain how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. And generally what happens is he gets a pretty good hearing. A few people decide that Jesus is truly the Messiah. A few other people get angry. He gets kicked out of the synagogue. And then uh, sometimes he goes, you know what, enough. I've had enough of you people. I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles because you guys are impossible to deal with. And then he goes and he preaches to the Gentiles. This is the pattern over and over and over in the book of Acts. And if you've read the book of Acts carefully, you get to the story and that's the pattern you expect. Except for Paul never goes to the synagogue here. And the reason he never goes is probably because there isn't one. This is a town that doesn't have a synagogue. 
These people don't have any kind of Jewish roots. There's no Jewish people to preach to first. And so him and Barnabas are suddenly faced with a slightly different situation. What's also interesting is that he gets immediate success. Paul and Barnabas usually go someplace, they preach, and it says, and a few of them believed. Here, the whole town believes. They see the miracle, and God bless their hearts. The, the story, I think, is told that these folks look like they're maybe a little superstitious. And so they see this miracle, and they go, hey, these guys are awesome. And so they immediately get all excited, but in their, um, in their naivete, they, they just immediately connect Paul and Barnabas with Zeus and Hermes, their gods. And so they grab a bowl, and they get excited, and they're going to sacrifice it, and they're going to worship Zeus all day long because Zeus healed this man. And, of course, Paul and Barnabas are going, oh, no, 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 no. This is not what we're doing. This is not the idea. This is not what we're supposed to do. And they come out, and they have to kind of quiet the crowd. They have created this excited, like, happy riot of people that are so thrilled about what's happening that they're going to worship in this way that just misunderstands Paul and Barnabas' point. And so Paul comes to them, and he offers a very interesting sermon. Does anybody notice what is missing from Paul's sermon here? That you usually would hear in a sermon. Any guesses? Uh, no, God's there. The Scriptures. There's no Bible verses in this sermon. This is one of two places in the New Testament where Paul preaches a sermon, and he never pulls out his Bible. Because, again, these people don't know the Bible. They don't know what the Bible says. And he could go, well, the prophet Micah says. And they go, uh, who's Micah? Well, okay, he's this guy. He came after Isaiah. Uh, who's Isaiah? Well, he's the person, you know, that follows the law of Moses. Who's Moses? Uh, yeah, well, Moses is the guy who fulfilled the promises to Abraham. Who's Abraham? Well, he was the descendant of Adam. Who's Adam? Right? This is the way it would go if Paul tried to pull a Bible out with these people. And so he does it. Instead, he gives this really interesting sermon where he says, you guys are worshiping something you don't understand. You don't understand what's going on here. But God hasn't left you totally in the dark. Have you ever gone out to your fields and they were full with harvest because the rain came and you had good things to eat? That was God preaching his sermon to you. Have you ever sat with your family around a table with a warm fire and eaten a, a meal and filled your bellies with it. That was God letting you know he loves you. This is a beautiful sermon, and the kind that would get many preachers kind of fired. Like, oh, what generic drivel is this? This is a, Anybody could do this. This is just happy thinking. But Paul says, no. God's grace has so filled the world that if you've had a good meal or a good crop, you know that God loves you. And that is the testimony he's given to himself. And it says there was then much discussion back and forth about how they don't need to sacrifice to Zeus anymore. If Paul had pulled out his Cracker Barrel Blueprint sermon, if Paul had done just like he did in Pisidian Antioch and walked up to these people and said, well, open your Bibles to page 583 and we're going to talk, he would have gotten nowhere. So instead he gives this folksy, earthy, rustic sermon that any farmer in the middle of Nowhereville could understand because he says, we've got to have a conversation that you can have. Not the conversation I want to have, but the conversation you need to have. And so Paul talks to them where they're at. 
This is what Paul does all the time. Uh, Acts 17, very different community. Here he's in a synagogue with Jewish people. The Berean Jews were a more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. A very different dialogue, but a dialogue nonetheless. Paul would preach something, they'd go, let us go to our Bibles and check that out, and we'll come back to you. The exact opposite of what he did with these people in Lystra and Derby. Acts 17. Uh, he's preaching here to, in Athens to a bunch of philosophers. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. This sermon is radical. This is, uh, Paul is sitting here and he goes, my sermon text today will be pagan philosophers and pagan poets. This stuff that was written about Zeus and written about Hermes and written about all these other gods that I don't think are real, there's still truth in it, so that's what we're going to use for our sermon text today. And so Paul takes from the pagans and makes the text of his sermon pagan philosophy because that is the starting point where they can hear his message. Another example, uh, a little bit later on in Ephesus, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, which is what they called the church at that point. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall at Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Here Paul has this new community, things are getting rough, so what he does, he sets up in a lecture hall, and they just do Jesus University. And every day people come, and Paul talks a little bit, and they ask him questions, and they have a back and forth, a dialogue, a conversation. It shouldn't surprise us, Jesus was a conversation person. Jesus had so many opportunities to preach at people, where instead he had a conversation. Just real quickly, uh, next verse, Luke 10 on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's Jesus do? He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He doesn't say, well, let me tell you what's right. He goes, hey, let's talk about it. Let's go back and forth. Uh, another example, Mark 8, verse 27. Jesus' and disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And he gets Peter to elicit and call him the Messiah. Jesus is drawing it out of him via conversation. Uh, the other famous one that comes to mind is the woman at the well in the book of John, a woman who Jesus isn't supposed to talk to. And he has this long conversation with her about living water and about sort of the Samaritan Pentateuch versus the Jewish Pentateuch. And there's all this stuff. All of these places are where Paul and Jesus and the leaders of the early church always wanted to have a conversation. I'm going beyond myself, but it's in the very beginning of the Bible. When God walks into the garden and he sees that Adam and Eve have sinned, the first words out of his mouth is, where are you guys? He knows where they are, but he asks them a question. What have you done? He knows what they've done. But instead of just screaming at him, he goes, Let, let's, let's hear about it. Let's talk about it. What happened here? What would you do? Because God is willing to converse with us to teach us truth. And so that's why as the Feast Church, one of our core values is dialogue. We believe that people learn the truth best when they're having a conversation, 
not when they're just being preached at. And that we have to be people who are deeply committed to conversations. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about how that happens and what that means. Because some of that's easy, right? That's why we do a Q&A at the end of our sermons. I'm guessing many of you have not been in churches where that's happened before, but we do it because that's one of our core values. Uh, it's why we do our Bible studies the way we do. Uh, I remember one, someone recently saying, I've never been in a Bible study where people ask me to th say what I thought about a text. Well, that's because that's what we believe in. We care about dialogue. But there's some ways of thinking that go along with that that I think is really important for us. Um, one of those is just the idea of humility. In order to have good conversations, we believe that Christians are not the only people that have something meaningful to say in the world. I'm going to pick at us a little bit here. It is really easy for Christians to put up our noses and sneer at Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or Ivy League universities or whatever and talk about how holy and right we are and how totally wrong and terrible they are. And if you have that attitude, you will have a very hard time having good conversations. No one wants to talk to somebody who thinks they're smarter than everybody else in the room. And the people that we live, we live amongst, no matter how legitimate or unlegitimate it is, whether it's entertainment or politics or academia or whatever, there are people that think long and deep and hard about things. And they deserve for us to treat them with some respect. For us to have the humility to go, well, what do you think? And I'll tell you what I think. That's the only way you have a legitimate conversation. Uh, for us in the church, this means science, too. Uh, it's real. I see lots of Christians go, well, those scientists, like it's a slur. Um, I know a lot of scientists, and they're good people. They work real hard. I mean, frankly, any of our people in medical fields, sorry, Cassie, you were smiling. I looked at you. You like any people in our medical field, they're scientists, okay? Like they're doing things based on biology that they were tossed by a biologist. And the idea that we're just going to look down on them because they don't hold our belief system is just, it doesn't help us have good conversations. And it's not the way Jesus treated people. It's not the way Paul walked into Lystra and Derby. He knew that these folks were, you know, a couple crayons short of a full box. And yet he still treated them with respect and dignity more than I did in that description, right? Because he thought that it was important to talk to them well. And so there's this humility that we need in our community of do we listen to other people and do we admit that things are hard? When someone who walks in our door and goes, I'd really love to be a Christian, but I have a real hard time with this evolution and creation thing. We go, yeah, that's a really hard thing, and I'd love to talk to you about that. Instead of, well, the word of the Lord in Genesis 1-1, right? I mean, we could just bang them if we want to, but they're just going to leave. And that's not the way that Jesus and Paul went about dealing with people. Um, uh, further, oh, I always get too many. Um, along those lines, catch up to my notes. Um, along those lines, uh, similarly, we have to just have a tolerance for when people say stuff that's weird. Okay? Um, I am assuming that when Paul and Barnabas were hanging out wherever they were lodging, and all of a sudden the whole town came through the streets with a bowl going, Hermes and Zeus are among us, Paul probably looked at Barnabas and goes, well, that wasn't expected, right? I mean, I don't think he saw that coming. I don't think he thought that would be there. But people say weird things. And being a good listener and sometimes being a good conversationalist means taking that in stride and going, okay, all right, yeah, okay. 
One of the reasons a lot of preachers don't like Q&As is they're afraid of weird questions. And we get them every once in a while. You've, you've been here for a while, every once in a while you've heard someone go, what, where did that come from? But that's okay. Being a church that values dialogue means we value what other people say, even if it's unusual, even if it's not what we're expecting. Because they're, they're, they're questioning whether or not they'll be heard. If someone asks a crazy left-field question and they're met with dismissiveness, then they know that this is a place that dismisses people easily. But if it's accepted and heard, they know this is a piece, place where people are heard. And that's a big piece of the dialogue is do we hear the other side of the conversation? This, I think, is really important. Um, listen to me carefully as I say this. It may sound wrong. I think ultimately if there are people who are skeptical of the truth of the Bible, they're skeptical of what Jesus is doing in the world, we will never win them over with doctrines. We will only win them over with Jesus Christ. People do not become Christians because they think you have the right opinions on things. They become Christians because they fall in love with Jesus. And here's the problem when we do dialogue badly. Is we have all the right answers, but we say it like a jerk, and then we're surprised that people don't want to talk to us anymore. Well, duh. And this is right. This is the way the scriptures would tell you. If you're not showing them the love of Christ, if they are not experiencing what it was like to be heard by Jesus, to be looked in the eyes by Jesus, to be accepted as a human being by Jesus, if they don't get that when they talk to us, it does not matter if we have correct positions on anything. They will go somewhere where they're treated more like Christ would treat them. And so the value of dialogue and having good conversations is that's who our Lord is. That's who Jesus was. He had good conversations. And he treated people well when they said things to him. Even when they said weird stuff, he still treated them well. And that's why it's one of our core values is being willing to engage in the dialogue no matter where it goes because we honor people's questions and curiosity. Um, I got so going. Where am I? Uh, it's my prayer that we be a place where people feel comfortable and coming. Because here, here's my belief. This is why this is one of our core values and this is the first one on the list, honestly. It is my belief that there are hundreds and thousands of people who are curious about Jesus right now who are at home watching NFL draft coverage. And the main reason they are is that one time they built up the muster to visit a church. Okay, that's scary. A couple weeks ago, I went with Emily and Nate to Emily's brother's bar mitzvah. And it was helpful for me because I remember how nervous it made me to go into a religious place. I'm like, I've never been to a synagogue. I don't know where I go. Where do I sit? When I, I kid you not, I was like, I know this is a dumb question. Is there a Gentile section? Or am I allowed to just sit there? Like, how does this go? I just didn't know. And a lot of people feel that way about church. They feel uncomfortable walking in. And so some, a lot of people around us built that one day, just built up the gumption, I'm going to go. And they walked into church and they said something or they did something or maybe they dared to ask a Christian friend a question. And they were hit over the head. Well, well, that's not what the Bible says and you need to do this and blah, 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 blah. They had their hands slapped and they said, fine, forget it. I'm done. And they're still curious and they still like Jesus. But church is just too hard because nobody's willing to talk to them and have a conversation with them. 
And we have just affirmed as a leadership and as a church, we're just not going to be those people to the very best of our ability. We're going to be the kind of people that when you have a question, we go, that's a great question. Let's talk about it. What do you think about it? Because we think we're like Jesus when we do that. And we think that that's something that makes this church different than other churches. And it's not that other churches have to have that value, but it's who we are and it's who we value and it's what we believe in and it's in the DNA of our people and it's just it's who we are. It's at the heart of what we try to be is that we are a people about conversation and dialogue. So we've got one question here uh, just about the prayer cards and kind of how we're doing all these things. I would just say we are still figuring out our new normal, and so I appreciate those suggestions. We'll continue to talk about when we put these things in. One of the suggestions is just putting the prayer requests in with collection or something like that, um, and that is definitely an option. We'll talk about those. Uh, but this is a good question here uh, along with that. How do you build someone up who for years have had constant debate with uh, church Christians, and now they're very skeptical about going uh, to be part of a fellowship or pray with anyone? So this is good, right? Like we talk about we want to be a good place to have conversations. Well, we have friends who have tried to do that multiple, multiple times, and they get in the fights, and then they get entrenched, and then there's sometimes bitterness, and sometimes there's just animosity and disagreement. And that's, that's really difficult. Um, I think one of the things, and we see this at different places in culture, um, is some of this idea of like hashtag not all. Maybe you've seen some places. Uh, particularly it's a big deal after a terrorist incident that involved Islamic extremists, you'll see hashtag not all Muslims. And there'll be Muslim people that will talk about all of the good things that they do in the world and the fact that Yes, I realize these people that did this terrible thing share my faith, but not all of us are that way, and we're different. I, I don't think that's a terrible rhetoric for us to share, right? The hashtag not all Christians. And I think some of that is when you get to a place of personal relationship, you go, I know, and it always helps if you'll admit it, I know the church has done a really bad job with this, but not all of us are that way, and I would love to have a better conversation. Um, also, I think we don't want to dodge responsibility. A lot of times we go to, well, that's the Catholic church, and I'm not Catholic. So, Or that was you know, whatever church you used to go to, or that's because you were talking to a Baptist or a Methodist or whatever. We throw out these titles, and we immediately cannibalize each other. I don't think that's helpful because that looks like blame shifting to a non-Christian. So what we say is, you're right, us Christians, we really stink at our jobs sometimes. But I want to do it better today. Can, will you give me the opportunity, the chance to try to do better than I know we've done in the past? And sometimes we hate that responsibility. Well, I didn't do it. Who cares if you didn't do it? It is helpful to be able to admit that you're wrong. If Christians are the one people in the world that won't admit, oh, yeah, I messed up, then why would anybody want to hang out with us? So admitting like, yeah, I, I'm sure people have treated you wrong, and I'm sorry we did that. I want to try to make up for that. Um, I think that's just a first step. And some of it is your character. If you live a really good life and you show your love and kindness all the time, then people will, it'll cause dissonance. If you're a really kind person and people think Christians are unkind, eventually one day someone's going to go, I don't get it. How are you a Christian? You're just so nice. Right? And that shows that you're making progress. Uh, I think there are many times that an intention to have a good conversation or to listen, to ask how someone feels or about their needs Still, is come, still ends up coming across as intimidating. 
Um, yeah, this is just really hard. We just have to be sensitive. We have to listen to the spirit in our lives. Um, sometimes people aren't ready to have certain conversations, and it's we're pushing too hard to make those happen. Um, one of the things we do, I w part of your prayer life should be, I'm, God, help me see open doors. Like, help hit me in the face with, oh, this is the moment I need to say this. You know, to look for good opportunities, have good emotional intelligence. Um, I think that's, it's hard to do, but I think that's a piece of it. Uh, question, I mentioned that Paul does not quote the Bible in this sermon, but in Acts 14, 15, he does talk about the worthlessness of idols. This is certainly a biblical theme. Did not mean to say that Paul's sermon is devoid of biblical thinking. He just doesn't pull up a chapter and verse. And when he talks about their worthless idols, he says it in the kindest way possible. Had he actually quoted old, uh, Hebrew Bible passages about idols, it would have been far nastier than what he said. Because the Hebrew Bible tends to talk about idolatry as stupidity. And Paul does not go there, interestingly. So there's no direct quote is what I meant. 